listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. I'm loved and I'm appreciated by some. I'm hated and I'm resisted by others, and yet I'm necessary for the establishment of God's kingdom and the spread of God's kingdom. What am I? I'm loved and appreciated by some, hated and resisted by others, yet I'm necessary for the establishment and the advancement of God's kingdom. What am I? The answer to this riddle is found in Luke chapter 20 where we're going to spend our time today in our Father's Word, beginning in verse 1. As you're turning there, I want to backtrack a little bit, backpedal a little bit to Luke chapter 19 in verse 47. You see, what's happened is Jesus has made his triumphant entrance into Jerusalem. The disciples have recognized him as their Messiah, as the Savior, as the deliverer of the people. And yet the Leaders of the people, the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, the spiritual leaders have resisted Jesus, haven't recognized him for who he really is. And Jesus made his way into the temple area and he overturned the tables of the money changers. He was making straight what had been made crooked, where they had perverted the pure and sincere devotion of God, the worship of God at the temple area. And they were making financial gains where they should have been making financial gain for the kingdom of God, not for self-personal gain and personal profit. And Jesus went in there and overturned their tables and sets the record straight. And it's interesting that in this context, in verse 47, we read this amazing passage, this amazing verse that gives us insight into what preoccupied Jesus' time. In Luke 19, 47, he, Jesus, was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. This becomes significant and important, but they could not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And so the teaching that's presented here is that Jesus makes his way into the temple area and resumed what he typically did, what preoccupied the majority of Jesus' time, and that was teaching and preaching. We know from elsewhere in the scriptures that he taught from the Old Testament. He picked up, he starts his ministry by picking up from the scroll of Isaiah and preaches and teaches. And he says, this day, this scripture is fulfilled among you this day in me. It's amazing. And then in the end of Luke's gospel, we see Jesus coming alongside of Cleopas and another disciple, and he opens up their eyes, opens up their minds, opens them up to understand that everything in the Old Testament was pointing to him, everything. So we get this understanding from here just in Luke chapter 19, and again, as we'll see in just a moment, Luke chapter 20, that the primary thing that Jesus was doing, the primary thing that Jesus was about was teaching and preaching, teaching and preaching the people, the good news, the message of forgiveness, the message of mercy, the message of grace. It's the whole purpose of the message. Look with me 
In Luke chapter 20, verse 1, one day as Jesus was teaching the people, you see this is on one of those days, we get a glimpse of what was happening and what happened on one of those days. There's a fly in the ointment. There's a burr under Jesus' saddle. And on one of these days, while Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us, by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why do you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What am I? I'm loved and appreciated by some, hated and resisted by others, and yet I'm necessary to establish the kingdom of God and to advance the kingdom of God. What am I? I am spiritual authority. I am spiritual authority. And Jesus embodies spiritual authority. He personifies spiritual authority. And this is what they're debating and this is what they're discussing here. The contrast, again, between the disciples and the unholy trinity. The unholy trinity. Look with me at verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching and preaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the unholy trinity comes up. And who's this unholy trinity? The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. It's said in different ways. It was said in a similar way in verse 47 in chapter 19. It's said in a similar way in chapter 9 in Luke's gospel. Turn with me in Luke chapter 9 in verse 18. It's the chief priests... The leaders of the people, the elders, sometimes it's said that the, the Pharisees, it's said in different ways, but it's the same group of people that's referred to, the spiritual leaders, those who had positions and traditions, those who had the positions and the traditions. There's a foreshadowing taking place here in Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 19, and even here in Luke chapter 9, a taste of what's on the horizon with Jesus. Look with me at Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Now it happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God, the Messiah, the Savior, the one prophesied and promised about in the Old Testament. Verse 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. See, there's the unholy trinity again. And be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus, again, using his most popular phrase, his most popular title in reference to himself, the Son of Man used in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, used in the book of Revelation. It all points to him, all refers to him, and it's this unholy trinity. Don't let yourself be deceived. Don't be fooled. 
None of this is catching Jesus off guard. Nobody took his life against his will. The Son of Man came and willingly gave his life. That's why he predicts it in Luke chapter 9 and elsewhere in the Scriptures. We're told ahead of time, the chief priests, the scribes, the leaders of the people, they're going to reject me to such a point, to such an extent, that it's going to result in the taking of my life. Now, this is important to understand because you shouldn't and you can't, you'd be wrong if you said this, say that the Jews have rejected Jesus. Because that's not true. Who do you think was proclaiming Jesus as their Messiah and as their Savior during the triumphal entry when Jesus rides in on a young donkey, the cult of a donkey? It's Jewish people. The gospel goes first to the Jewish people. You see, legally, as a nation, this is important to make a distinction. And the Catholic Church swung the pendulum this way during a time where Christianity was Hellenized. The Jewish roots of the Christian faith were stripped from it. So the Catholic Church swung the pendulum and created this totally separate non-Jewish entity in its entirety, stripping itself from the Jewish involvement in Christianity completely. Remember, Judaism started in Jerusalem. Where were the apostles meeting? They were meeting in Jerusalem. You see Paul the apostle even taking an offering to send to the church in Jerusalem. We see the Jerusalem council in the book of Acts. And what's happened is we've Hellenized, that's a fancy word for making the Jewish roots of Christianity completely absent. We've stripped Christianity of its Jewish roots to our detriment. And we think that God wants nothing to do with the Jew. No, the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people, the elders, were acting when they rejected Jesus in a legal position for the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. They were the ones who had Jesus crucified with the participation, the grunts, the mobsters, so to speak, of the Romans. If it was not for the leaders of the people, the legal entity, the ruling council of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel would not have rejected Jesus. And that was important the first time around, but there's coming a day when the rulers of Israel, unlike the first time around, will recognize officially Jesus as the Savior, as the Messiah, when he sits on the throne of David, as is promised and prophesied in the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant, that there would be one seed, one descendant from Abraham, who would come from Abraham, and all nations on the earth will be blessed through him. The Abrahamic covenant giving that foreshadowing to the arrival of Jesus Christ, and then the Davidic covenant providing greater clarity that there would be somebody who would come from David, who was a descendant of Abraham, someone who would come from Solomon, who was a descendant of Abraham, who would be the seed who would rule and reign, sit on a literal throne, rule over a literal kingdom, and then when that happens, Jesus would have his rightful place and would be recognized officially by the leaders of Israel. The nation of Israel would officially recognize Jesus. And that's what is spoken of at the end of the book of Romans where it says all Israel will be saved when the Jewish nation officially recognizes Jesus. Right now we're living in that time 
where that has not yet happened. We're longing for that time. We're waiting for that time. And we're dealing with the same issue that this unholy trinity was dealing with, this issue of authority. Authority. See, the word that's used there, it's used three times in Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. The word that's used there means to have a freedom to move about. It does mean authority. It does mean to have power. It means to be able to do something at will, to have credibility, to have chutzpah. If we want to use a, a word that can describe that a little bit, to have chutzpah, to have credibility. Jesus had something He had authority, and those who had the positions and the traditions didn't have what Jesus had, and it got underneath their skin. We see that this unholy trinity, they're going to play a key role in the execution of Jesus. We don't want to say it's a murder of Jesus. It was the voluntary sacrifice of Jesus. You know, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane means pressure, to be pressured. So the Son of Man was experiencing pressure while he was in the Garden of Pressure. Deliberate wordplay there in the Scriptures. All Jesus would have had to do was travel a few hundred yards up and over the hill on the Mount of Olives and go into the wilderness area like many before him had done when they were being chased and persecuted by the Romans, and he could have hid himself. But no, Jesus willingly, voluntarily waited so that he could be captured Because it wasn't the decision by the Romans that led Jesus to the cross. It wasn't the conclusion by the legal rulers of the nation of Israel that led Jesus to the cross. It was the Son of Man's decision. It was Jesus' decision to willingly, voluntarily give himself as the sacrifice, the one-for-one substitution sacrifice so that you could have your sins forgiven, so that I could have my sins forgiven. That's how much God hates and despises sin, your sin and mine. And guess what? That's also how much God loves you. God loves you so much, he was not willing. God was saying, you know, it's not tolerable For my creation, created in my image, created in my likeness, I want communion, I want relationship. It's not acceptable to let my creation, to let men and women, boys and girls, go into an eternity separate from me. I don't like that idea. I don't want that idea. Did you ever stop to think that God actually likes you? He actually likes you. Yes, he loves you. He loves me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one-of-a-kind, uniquely brought forth son, his only begotten son. That's what it means, begotten. It means to be one-of-a-kind, uniquely brought forth, born of a virgin without sin. That's what that means. God so loved the world that he gave that gift, that priceless gift of his own son for you and for, you, for me. Now, we can get our heads wrapped around sometimes the love of God, but sometimes we don't understand that for God to love us, it also means that he likes us. He wants the pleasure of your company. He wants fellowship with you. 
He wants you to enjoy the fullness of joy that comes in walking with him and experiencing the forgiveness of all of our sins. You know, the forgiveness of all our sins, that's not the end of the story. That's the entryway into the mansion. The forgiveness of sin is what makes it possible to enjoy God. Do you know that God is enjoyable? How do I know that's true? You know it's true too. Any and every time we've resisted God, we've experienced the hard way what it's like to not enjoy the blessings of God, the goodness of God, his very presence. The purpose of forgiveness is not so that forgiveness is just isolated on its own, that God wants to forgive us and then we hold on for dear life, wait for Jesus to return, and then we see him face to face. No, God saves us. He forgives us of all of our sins so that we could be brought into an enjoyable day by day, moment by moment relationship with him Sunday through Saturday, day after day moment by moment within each day. That's the reason why Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sins and mine, not just to give us eternal life. You know, read 1 John when you get a chance. If you're looking for something to spend your time in, in your time in meditating on the Word of God and focusing on the Word of God, saturating on the Word of God, spend some time in 1 John. You'll understand that eternal life is something that the apostle talks about right here and right now. In fact, he says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. So if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, I've given my life to Jesus Christ. Anytime somebody gives their life to Jesus Christ, eternal life is not something we're just holding on to and waiting for to be something that materializes in the future. It happens right now. The moment we give our lives to Jesus Christ, we begin to experience the benefits of the full culmination of eternal life when we see God face to face. And he wipes away every tear. Well, the beginning of those tears being removed happens the moment you accept Christ. God likes you. He likes you so much. Let me put it in this way so that it doesn't seem like we hear about the love of God so much we can't comprehend the like of God. God likes you so much that he wants to enjoy the pleasure of your company on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis. And in order for that to happen, he has to remove the obstacle between you and him, and that's called sin. Yes, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were enemies of God. If you read Ephesians chapter 2, you'll see that we were objects of God's wrath. And yet we're also objects of God's affection. The only one, divinely speaking, the only one who will keep you from a relationship with the living and true God, it isn't God. It's you and it's me. God has done it all by sending Jesus on the cross. All he asks is for an RSVP to respond to his initiative so that all of our sins can be removed, all of our sins can be forgiven, and that, my dear friend, is what opens up the door to fellowship with 
God. Now, the Pharisees, the leaders of the people, the elders, they didn't want fellowship with Jesus. And those of us who have had our sins forgiven, we look at this particular passage and we shake our heads and we say, look at this unholy trinity. These are the guys who end up being instruments of the devil. No, they accomplish actually the plan of God. That's for another time and another day to be able to get into that. But it's this unholy trinity, the chief priests in verse 1, the scribes and the elders who are resisting the authority of Jesus Christ. And we shake our heads and we look at these guys and we say, how could these guys not get what the disciples got? They resist the authority of Jesus Christ to such an extent that they end up doing him in. You see, before we get off on getting down on the unholy trinity, we have to understand that discipleship is all about lordship. Discipleship has everything to do with authority, the authority of Jesus Christ. When we first give our lives to Christ, we know a little bit about the authority of Jesus Christ. We accept him in a big way as the new master of our lives, the new Lord of our lives, the God of our lives. That's what it means if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You've got to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart God raised them from the dead, that Jesus is the new master of your life. That's what has to happen in order to be saved. But that's the beginning of this journey in the authority of Jesus Christ. I didn't understand the authority of Jesus Christ when I first gave my life to him, and neither did you. The authority of Jesus is something that we're growing into. We're growing to understand and appreciate the authority of Jesus Christ. There are areas in our lives where financially Jesus is not the Lord. There are areas of our lives where time, we don't have Jesus as the Lord, the master of our time. He's not the Lord, the master of our relationships. He's not the Lord and the master in our marital relationship where husbands, this is why we're having difficulty loving our wives as Christ loved the church because we don't understand the authority of Jesus in our own lives in submitting to God so that he will make us a better husband. And wives, we don't understand the, the way that God somehow is able to as a byproduct of understanding the authority of Jesus Christ, help us submit to our husbands as the church submits to Jesus Christ. The journey of a disciple, the journey of a follower of Jesus Christ is all about the authority of Jesus. There are areas in your life, there are areas in my life where God wants you and he wants me to surrender to his authority. And until we do that in our marriages, our marriages won't be what they need to be. And it's not that your spouse needs to change, and then you will. Did God wait for you? Did Jesus wait for me to get our lives together until he decided to go to the cross? See, that's what marriage is. Marriage is a commitment to love the other person before you know what the other person is going to do.
And when we first get married, we don't know all of that. We don't understand all of that. We think we understand that, but we don't understand that. And it takes a lifetime of marriage before we begin to understand, you know, there's something about love that I don't understand the unconditional nature of God that he would love me before I got my act together. It's submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ that helps me obey God in every area of my life. The unholy trinity is giving Jesus a hard time in an ultimate way, but you and I can give Jesus a hard time in any area of our lives where we shirk and we shun the authority of Jesus Christ. And if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your God, you've done that for the forgiveness of your sins, the fundamental thing that you need to understand is the same thing that I need to understand. We need to understand that God does not divorce authority, submitting to his authority from growing in him. One of the main reasons why we get stuck in our spiritual journey and we're not growing anymore is because of no other reason than there is one area of our lives. One. Doesn't have to be two. Doesn't have to be three. But there can be one area of our lives where God has spoken to us and we are not willing to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. All it takes is one area of our lives where we're not willing to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. All it takes is one area in our family life, in a family unit, where somebody's not willing to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ, and it can affect the entire family. You know that can happen in the body of Christ in a church, whether a church is small, whether a church is large. It's body life. One part of the body affects the other part of the body. That's why you need to be a surrendered servant of the living and true God. Authority does matter. And the truth is that we're, we're a lot, not just like the disciples who followed Jesus, we're also like the unholy trinity, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the scribes, the elders, the chief priests, we're a lot like them too. When we shirk and we shun the authority of Jesus Christ, there are always consequences when we do not submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. And this is the thing that Jesus zeroes in on with them. See, they think they're zeroing in on Jesus and saying, hey, by whose authority do you have the capability to do what we're watching and hearing you do right now, which we'll get to in a moment? Who gave you this authority? By whose authority do you do these things? And Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm going to ask you a question because I'm the one in the driver's seat, not you. Have you noticed that it's God who's in the driver's seat of your life? The older I get, the more I realize we're, I'm not even a co-pilot. I'm a backseat. You thought I was going to say driver. No, that's when I get into trouble. I'm a backseat traveling companion. Jesus has the driver's license. Jesus took the driver's test. Jesus has the title to the car. Jesus has the authority to drive wherever he wants to drive. How about giving up to Jesus what he does so well? He does it so well, he knows how to drive because Jesus had the authority. 
See, in verse 1, we get an understanding of the problem that they had. Chapter 20, verse 1, one day as Jesus was teaching the people, that word that's used there is to instruct, to provide education. He was teaching from the Old Testament, but he wasn't just teaching. He was teaching the people in the temple, his primary place, when this fly in the ointment, this fly zips into the ointment, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. He's teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. The word that's used there is a word that's found common to Luke and to the Apostle Paul. And we have uh, affirmation of the authenticity of Luke's gospel and the book of Acts because it's Paul and it's Luke who use the same root word that's used here, translated into the English language as evangelizing or evangelism. Helps us understand the particular way that this teaching is taking place. Another way to say it would be gospelizing. He's gospelizing. That's what Jesus is doing. This is amazing what he is doing. He's teaching the word of God in such a way that he's gospelizing. He's emphasizing the mercy of God, emphasizing the grace of God, emphasizing the work of God. The other gospel writers, Matthew and Mark and John, don't use the same word as frequently as Luke does or as Paul does. And it helps us understand that there's some historical truth to the book of Acts where Luke conveys the traveling journey of the apostle Paul because Luke was one of the traveling companions. And see, when you spend time with somebody, you start to use the same language. You start to use each other's language. And so we shouldn't be surprised to see Luke using the same language that Paul uses, gospelizing. Jesus was teaching in such a way that he was gospelizing, he was evangelizing, he was emphasizing the mercy of God. He wanted people to respond, not just fill gray matter. See, we have to understand this. In your personal Bible study time, the objective is not just to cram more Bible verses into that cranium. See, in your personal Bible study, it's not the objective to just memorize Scripture and learn Scripture. The Pharisees did that in our Awana program for children. If you're leading and teaching and part of the Awana program, the objective is not just to get the children to memorize passages of Scripture. The objective is to get those children to understand and apply Scripture in such a way that they gospelize that they share the good news that they have. Philemon 6 says, verse 6 of the book of Philemon, I pray that you might be active in sharing your faith so that you might come to a fuller understanding of everything we have in Christ Jesus. You know, there's a correlation between your ability to appreciate what God's given you and your giving away what God has given you in your life group. Their purpose is not just to study the scriptures and to become reacquainted with a passage of scripture or a message or a passage. The purpose is to multiply and to grow, to give away what God has given you, to give away and to grow. A life group should be multiplying because a follower of Jesus Christ gospelizes. A follower of Jesus Christ is like Jesus. You know, the word Christian, first used in Antioch, means little Christ. And Jesus' teaching was characterized, this is so practical, this should transform the way you do Bible study this week. You don't have to go to seminary. 
You don't have to go to Bible college. You don't have to hear anything else. All you need is a translation of the Bible. Which translation is the best one? The one that you read and that you apply. The purpose of reading the Bible to teach yourself or to be taught and to be instructed is to gospelize, to go out and to share the great news because that's what Jesus was doing. And if you're going to be a little Jesus, a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to be doing what you saw Jesus doing as we began to read this passage of Scripture, what you see, what I see Jesus doing when we read the gospel. He's teaching the Word of God in such a way that it's practical for everyday living. It emphasizes the mercy of God and the undeserved favor of God, also known as the grace of God, and its purpose by nature. Biblical teaching and preaching cannot be contained. If you're really studying the Bible and really sitting at the feet of Jesus, you will take what you're learning and share it with other people. You will gospelize. You will evangelize because that's what Jesus was doing from the beginning. It was characteristically the thing he did. The signs and the wonders, the miraculous signs and wonders. You know, people get all in a tizzy. They get all bent out of shape. But we need to be, if we're going to be like Jesus, we need to perform miraculous signs and wonders. Well, why don't you start with the miraculous sign and wonder of focusing on the Word of God to such a degree that you start sharing it with your neighbor? Because that was the main thing that Jesus did. And the miraculous signs and wonders were done to authenticate the authority because of his identity. The reason why Jesus had the authority is because Jesus had and Jesus has the identity. It's because of who Jesus was and because of who Jesus is that Jesus could say what he did and say what he says. It's the identity of Jesus They gave him the authority. You cannot separate authority from identity. And this is what the chief priests and leaders of the nation of Israel, the elders, did not understand. Don't think that just because you have a position that that gives you the ability to rightly discern what Jesus is saying. In fact, that should scare you. Scares me. Here are these guys who had the equivalent of a seminary education. Here are these guys who had the reputation. They had the position. They had the authority in terms of position. They had the tradition. But spiritually speaking, they lacked the authority that they would have had, that they could have had if they were concerned more with the kingdom of God and the identity of his messenger than they were with their own title, with their own position. 
I wonder what it might have been like to see Jesus teach and gospelize. Close your eyes for a minute and imagine that. What might it have been like for Jesus to teach and to gospelize the tone of his voice, the timber, the inflection, the ebbing and the flowing and the consequence of Jesus' teaching. You don't have to imagine it too much. All we need to do is look at Mark chapter 1. And then we'll look at Matthew chapter 7. Look with me at Mark chapter 1. We get a glimpse. In verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had, there's the word, authority and not as the scribes. We see this from Mark chapter 1, a contrast between the way Jesus taught and the way those who had a position and the traditions taught the scribes. Right out of the gate, this thing is brewing. It's boiling. It's simmering. It's a collision waiting to happen between the one who had and the one who has authority, Jesus, and the ones who only had the position and the traditions. And then we see again in Matthew chapter 7. In verse 29, for he, Jesus, was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. We see this characteristic trait of Jesus. The way he taught was unmistakable. It was remarkable. It was memorable. So much so, so much so did Jesus break the mold that decades later when the verbal tradition, the gospels that was passed on verbally was written down, it was unforgettable. That's what it means for Jesus to teach in such a way that the people were astonished. They were beside themselves. They had never seen anything like this. That's what led them in other parts of the scriptures to say, this is a prophet of God. This is the chosen one of God that doesn't go far enough. Jehovah's Witnesses don't go far enough in saying that Jesus was just a prophet of God or just a God. No, Jesus was God and Jesus is God. He's the anointed Messiah. That's what Christ means, the anointed one. Which anointed one? The one spoken of in the Old Testament from Genesis to that famous Italian prophet Malachi, Malachi. Jesus taught in such a way that it was contagious. When you're reading the Bible the right way and you're studying the Bible the right way, it's contagious. Our life groups should be multiplying because you care about reaching other people. Didn't God care about reaching you and reaching me? Of course he did. Well, if you're following him, and if I'm following him, we'll care about that same Jesus reaching other people. But that messes up my life group. I can't, it messes up your life group. It's a big, beautiful mess, this kingdom of God. And that was the problem of the unholy trinity. The scribes, the teachers of the law, and the elders, the ones with the positions and the traditions didn't like the fact that 
When the Messiah came and had the authority and began to teach and people began to respond, they were no longer responding to them. They weren't doing what they should have been doing. See, as a follower of Jesus Christ, what you should be doing is what Jesus was doing and what Jesus still wants to do. Through anybody who's willing to submit to his authority, spread the message. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Share your possessions. Share your household. Get out of that comfort zone which has put God in a box. Let me tell you something. There's nothing more comfortable than being surrendered to Jesus Christ. There's nothing more exciting and exuberant. That's the cure for boredom. You got a boring life? Might be an authority issue. There's nothing boring about following Jesus Christ. Ask Philip, who's on his way to do something in the book of Acts, and out of the blue, I don't know if they watched Star Trek back then or what, out of the blue, all of a sudden, he appears next to a chariot and leads the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. So much so does he understand the gospel. Then he says, oh, hey, Philip, here's some water. Should I be baptized? The cure for a bored life is submission to the authority of Jesus Christ. Should I close in prayer right there? We're not done yet. Not only did Jesus teach and gospelize with authority, but he gave authority to those who would pick up the mantle from him to do the same. Mark chapter 3. Turn with me. Mark chapter 3. Amazing passage of scripture. Mark chapter 3 beginning in verse 13. And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him And he might send them out to preach. There's that word preach again. And have authority to cast out demons. And then we look at Luke chapter 9 in verse 1. See, I want to show you a couple of different passages so that you see this is consistent. And he, Jesus, called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Don't let yourself get fixated on signs and wonders. The greatest sign and wonder is that God would get such a hold of your life and mine, and you're talking to somebody who wanted to be a trial attorney. Thank you, Jesus, that I got spared. (laughs) The greatest miracle of all Sorry to all the attorneys out there. Greatest miracle of all is that God would get any of us to the point where we trust God to say, your authority rules and reigns over my life. I'm going to stop revisiting the same issue again and again and again and again. You taught, you preached, you healed, you moved and you shook 
with authority. And therefore, I, by faith, will accept your authority in every area of my life. And that'll get you unstuck. Always does. See, we have the same issue, the same problem that the unholy trinity had. We struggle with the authority of Jesus Christ. We might not struggle in an overt way, but we struggle in covert ways. Under the radar. We might fool people. They might think that we're surrendered to Jesus Christ in all these other areas. We might have people fooled because we're serving in this capacity and that capacity. Listen, before you get busy in ministry and service outside of your family, here we go. The first order of business in submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ is within your family. If you're not serving Jesus Christ and the, the idea of you submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ is not being manifest in your family, husband to wife, wife to husband, parents to children, if that's not being made manifest, you are using an external ministry as an excuse you're embracing irresponsibility and you're hiding behind a mask. But none of us can hide from God. The authority issue manifests itself in our individual lives in the lordship of Jesus Christ. The authority issue manifests itself in our family relationships. And the authority issue manifests itself in the body of Christ. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 17. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 17, God, through Jesus, not only gave authority to the apostles, but he also gives authority to church leaders. Now, before you get on your high horse and think that I'm trying to use scripture to justify my position, I'm going to hit myself over the head the hardest, harder than any of us today. So those of you who are spiritual masochists who like to see the pastor get hit hard, hold on to your seat because you're going to go home with a smile on your face. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. You know, every single one of us is eating the same sandwich every day of the week. There's a thick piece of bread on the bottom, a thick piece of bread on the top, and there's all kinds of stuff in the middle, four ingredients, W-I-F-F. M. What's in it for me? It's a what's in it for me sandwich. You've been eating it today while you've been listening. You're eating it all throughout the course of the week. Everything we do, we do because of me, myself, and I. Yes, I'm appealing to our selfish motives. We even follow God because we see there's something in it for us. Look at that last part of Hebrews 13, 17. Look at the very last part of Hebrews 13, 17, for that would be of no advantage to you. You know, it is advantageous for you. It is advantageous for me 
to listen to those whom God has placed in a position of authority. And the context here of Hebrews 13, 17 is leadership in the church. And the leaders of the church are the elders of the church. And within the elders, you have people who function as some are pastors and teachers, but they're all elders. And the elders should be acting together, not individual elders unless... They're commissioned by the elders to do those things on behalf of the elders. We need to understand that. We don't understand that in the body of Christ. But the elders are the ones who are the leaders in the church. The apostles initially given and then the authority. By the time we get to Hebrews 13, 17, we see this. The beginning part of that verse, obey your leaders and submit to them for their keeping watch over your souls. Now, the second part is what I want to look at there, as those who will have to give an account. This is where I hit myself over the head. And if you're an elder in the church, fear and trembling. If you're listening by podcast or by radio, fear and trembling. Because as a reminder, there was a very large church, much larger than this church, Thousands of people, supposedly more than 10,000 people on the West Coast, we might say the left coast, the West Coast of the United States that dissolved on January 1st of this year. The church is no more. It no longer exists. And you know the reason why it no longer exists, this church in Seattle? For no other reason. Pay attention. Then the key leader, the lead pastor, is characterized as spiritual abuse of the authority that God gave him. And that spiritual abuse by that one pastor spread like gangrene, or I should say, to be biblical about it, even more, gangrene is an example in the scriptures too, but a little yeast works through the whole batch. All of the elders likewise began to be spiritually abusive to the point where As the book of James says in chapter one, sin, when it's full grown, leads to death. The whole church became infected, and the whole church, as of January 1st of this year, dissolved. Now, why don't I say the name of the pastor? It's public knowledge. Why don't I say the name of the church? It's public knowledge because it doesn't matter who the pastor is. Doesn't matter who the elders are. Doesn't matter who the church is, what church it was. It could be any pastor, any group of elders, any church. In fact, it could be any family. If God's given you authority and you're in the family, your husband, he's given you authority. Wife, given you authority. You should be submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ. That could be the number one reason why you're having marital problems and family problems. But the point is simply this. He says it in Hebrews 13, 17. It's also said in James chapter 3, not many of you should be teachers, brothers, because those who teach will be judged more strictly. When you're in a position of authority that God puts you in, It's not something that we aspire to so that we can make a name for ourselves. It's not something that we aspire to so that we can do anything else other than teach and gospelize. Teach and gospelize. Preach the gospel in such a way that people respond to Jesus Christ. If people are only responding to your teaching, 
and their eyesight only stays horizontal looking at you, you're not teaching and gospelizing the way you need to teach and gospelize. Your teaching and your preaching must be infectious in a good way. It must be inspiring in a godly way where other people hear what you have to say. Other people see your lifestyle and they say, I want that Jesus. We've had enough of the fake Jesuses. We've had enough of the fake churches. We've got enough of the fake gospels. There's only one original Jesus. And it's time that we follow Jesus by submitting to his authority to such a degree that we hear from God no matter who the vessel might be. That we follow God and we get busy building the only kingdom that's going to endure forever. It's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's going to outlast us all. And if we're part of that kingdom, we'll get to be part of that kingdom in the day to come when Jesus returns. Nobody takes spiritual authority if you're really reading the Bible lightly. It does matter what's happening in your marriage. It does matter, wives, if you're submitting to your husband. It does matter because if you're not, you have an authority problem. And it's not a primary problem with your husband. It's a problem with the authority of Jesus Christ. Husbands, and I'm one of them. If you don't do what the Bible says by loving your wife as Christ loves the church, you have an authority problem. And for those of you who might be thinking, I'm going to remember this and share this with my spouse, you just royally missed the point. Husbands, if you do not embrace loving your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself, you have an authority problem. It's not with your spouse, your wife. It's with Jesus. Did you know, as Paul talks in that passage in Ephesians, look at it for yourself, the whole purpose of marriage is to reflect the relationship of Jesus Christ to his church and the church to Jesus Christ. Do we understand that the primary purpose of marriage is not just to have our physical needs met, although that's a byproduct, and it's a wonderful byproduct, guilt-free physical intimacy in the context of marriage as opposed to Guilt-filled physical intimacy outside the context of marriage. Emotional intimacy outside the context of marriage. The number one purpose of marriage is to help you and me understand the love of God that cannot be put into human language. God Humbles himself to speak through English. Humbles himself to speak through French. Humbles himself to speak through Spanish and every other language under the sun. But you cannot explain the love of God that surpasses human intellectual insight with language. So God gave us the institution of marriage. And when a husband understands the authority of Jesus over his own life, 
And when the wife understands the authority of Jesus over her own life, then that marriage becomes God-honoring. And people, instead of saying, we want to redefine marriage, they say, I want that kind of a marriage, not just because of what it gives me in this life, but because I see something in that institution about God that I would not have if it were not for that institution, one man and one woman. This is for another day, but that's why the attack on marriage is an attack on God. Because you're distorting and perverting and redefining what God created when he said it was good. And that means finished. Doesn't have anything to be added to. The whole purpose of Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8, is to help us understand that the reason why Jesus had the authority is the reason why Jesus has the authority made possible through the resurrection. He lives forever because of who Jesus was and because of who Jesus is. And once we understand and as we continue to rediscover that truth, our discipleship, our ability to do what Jesus did, goes to a deeper, higher place. Because that's what it's all about for the follower of Christ. To do what Jesus did, the way Jesus did it, to take the gospel and to gospelize every place we go. To share with people the message of salvation and forgiveness of sin that we all so desperately need. It all begins with And it ends with a healthy understanding of the authority of Jesus Christ over your life and mine. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.